It is a real privilege to invite Terry up to speak. Um, so Terry, a number of years ago, um, I won't say when, um, started a, a group of believers that has turned into a network of 1,500 churches, over 70 nations. He is, he is genuinely one of the most humble, anointed men I've ever had the privilege of listening to. He explains grace in a way that touches your heart in a way that words just tend not to. Um, so it's with a real joy you get to invite up Terry Virgo. Give him a round of applause, please. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, funny, I hadn't any intention of giving a testimony, but I was so inspired by the one I've just heard. Um, I had an extraordinary experience earlier in the year. Uh, I um, went to a, a blood test, which one does kind of on an annual basis, uh, thanks to the NHS. I just did it, didn't think any more about it. Had a phone call the next week saying, uh, I'd like you to come in, please. I went in, I met a doctor I'd never met before, and uh, he showed me on his screen a graph of recent blood tests, and uh, it's sort of steady like this, and then this year goes off the screen. And he said, uh, there's something seriously wrong with your blood. Um, and then he put up on the screen about eight different things it could be. One was pregnancy. We said, not that one. <laughs> and uh, kind of said, not that one, not that one. And the last one was myeloma, which is um, cancer of the blood, uh, from which my sister died uh, six years ago. And uh, he said, I'm afraid it does point, it does point there. Um, there's no healing for that. And uh, we could get you on a chemo thing, which would kind of prolong things for you and so on. Uh, but that's what it looks like it is. So, uh, okay. Uh, so I uh, go home and tell my wife, Wendy. Um, we write to my, my five kids, like, hey, uh, can't live forever. And uh, here we go. Uh, that's the score. I was going to go to Canada the next week. I said to him, I can't uh, get to hospital, I'm going to Canada. He said, no, no, you're not going to Canada. We need to get to a hospital, we need to get things started. Um, okay, so um, the next day, I, 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 on the Wednesday morning, I, I go to a prayer meeting every Wednesday if I'm in town. Uh, a friend of mine, Steve Brading, I've uh, been a friend for decades, and uh, he's moved quite near to us. And we have a prayer meeting, we pray for revival every Wednesday morning. And a few have joined us now, it's about 10 now. And we just pray every Wednesday. So I said to Wendy, um, I don't want to talk about this, it'll dominate the prayer meeting if we talk about it. So let's just go. And so we go and we're uh, experiencing the Lord's presence in a wonderful way. And Steve, who is very prophetic, he said, uh, I just see the Lord pouring oil on all of us, which you know, doesn't happen every week, he just said it. And uh, okay, so we're just praying. And I don't know about you, but uh, back in the 90s, there was this outpouring of the Spirit, which was associated with lots of laughter and overwhelming joy. And I was in meetings when that happened. And, you know, when everybody's laughing, you kind of laugh. It's difficult not to. Uh, but I never had that internal experience at that time. And anyway, after he said this, we're just, just there in the presence of God. And I suddenly burst out laughing. And uh, not only I, but the whole room, I said the whole room, 10 of us, were all killing ourselves laughing, just overwhelmed, this wonderful 
I can only call it heavenly joy, tremendous fun and joy and sense of God's presence was wonderful and overwhelming. And, uh, and then uh, uh, we kind of comes to the end, prayer meeting comes to an end and uh, the phone goes in my pocket and it's the doctor again. Uh, would you come in now, please? Would you bring your wife? Uh, I'd like to talk to you again. Okay, so we go in. So I say to Wendy, isn't this amazing? I probably had the most serious news I've ever had, and I'm laughing my head off. And uh, isn't this extraordinary? And uh, yeah, extraordinary. So we go in, and you know, he puts Wendy in the picture about how serious it all is, and so on. Okay, thank you. I'll take some more blood. Take some more blood. I go home. A couple of days later, I get another phone call from this doctor. He says, um, uh, I don't know how to put this. He said. Um, he said, our laboratories never make mistakes, um, uh, but I'm ever so sorry, but they've obviously made a terrible mistake. There's nothing wrong with your blood. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so this is extraordinary. So uh, I think we'll all be too busy in heaven worshipping Jesus to ever find out whether it was a laboratory mistake or maybe something else. Eh? So uh, I said to the guy, so, so can, I go to, can I go to Canada? They said, go where you like. He said, it's all, it's all over. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm, I, will write, I will write an official uh, complaint to the laboratory because I realise, you know, you've been through If I can write to British Airways, do anything about your ticket and stuff. He was very apologetic. So, hey, isn't that great? God, God is good, eh? Uh, just to mention, there's a book table outside... Um, during the lockdown, which was a funny time, wasn't it? I thought, what on earth do I do? Uh, I had a very busy program coming up, and suddenly I can't do anything. And I felt God really directed me to write, and I've, I've written God's Treasured Possession, which is really the story of Moses taking the people out of slavery into inheritance, which, of course, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, is written down for our instruction. It happened to them, but God got him to write it down so that we could learn from their journey the many lessons. And I really feel it's a book that is relevant to us as God's people, and uh, we're all on that journey. And I found real joy in writing it. Every chapter's got something to teach us. So uh, God's treasure possession. The short chapters, 30 of them. You can use it over a month if you would like to. There are one or two other titles there. Uh, God's Lavish Grace. Uh, I'm grateful to people who've written and say, it changed my life. And uh, it's wonderful to write a book that people said, no, no, it really changed my life. So that and one or two other titles on the table as you leave. Okay, so we're going to look at 2 Kings and chapter 7. 2 Kings and chapter 7. And uh, I'm reading the first nine verses. It, it follows a terrible time in Israel's history uh, when there's awful famine of outrageous proportions. They are in a besieged city. And it looks like it's curtains for everybody. If you read the previous chapter, which we won't, it tells a terrible story of this awful uh, famine that's going on in this besieged city. It's like it's a hopeless situation. And the next chapter starts, chapter 7. Then Elijah said, listen to the word of the Lord. The Lord says, tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel. And two measures of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The royal officer, on whose hand the king was leaning, answered the man of God and said, If the Lord should make the windows of heaven open, could this thing be? 
Then he said, behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why don't we sit here until we die? If we say we'll enter the city, famine's in the city. We'll die there. If we sit here, we'll die also. Now therefore, come, let's go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we'll live. If they kill us, we will but die. They rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even a sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against the kings of the Hittites, the kings against us, the kings of the Hittites, the kings of the Egyptians, to come upon us. Therefore they arose and fled in the twilight, and left their tents, their horses, their donkeys, even in the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. When the lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one tent and ate and drank and carried from there silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news, but we're keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy of singing your praise together. We thank you that, Lord, we know Jesus saves. It's such a joy to sing your praise together. Well, we pray for your help as we open your word. Holy Spirit, would you come right now? Would you be our teacher? Come and rest upon us, please. That what we do in this room together now is heavenly, it's God speaking. Father, would you please grant this to us that we might know the wonder of the voice of God coming to our lives. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 So you've got an amazing story here of extraordinary deliverance, visitation of God, turning a situation upside down, one of horror, frightening fear of death to one of extraordinary supply and God, God's amazing intervention. I remember once hearing John Humphreys interviewing somebody on the Morning Today program on the radio, which I usually listen to, and he's talking to a minister and uh, in some context, the conversation again went something about the Bible being a book about morality. And the minister interrupted uh, John Humphreys and said to him, no, no, the Bible's not a book about morality. And he said, I never thought I'd ever hear a minister say, the Bible is not a book about morality. He said, no, you've misunderstood completely. He said, the Bible is a book about God's incredible deliverance of turning situations upside down, of breaking through, of coming and meeting our need, coming and saving. That's what the Bible's about. 
And he was kind of shocked, and he was so right that that is what the Bible's about. It's not a book about morality. As so often people think Christianity is just about morality. It's about the saving intervention of God. And this is one of those stories in the Bible where God suddenly intervenes and saves. Well, the story is, here are some lepers outside the city, and uh, you know they are as good as dead. People inside the city no longer have anything. They can't pass anything down. Normally, they will be sitting outside the city wall and no doubt a basket would be let down with food in it and they'd survive. They're unclean, they're leprous, they're not allowed into the city, but mercifully, they would let food down to them uh, and that had stopped because there's nothing left in the city. So they're kind of as good as dead. And so they come to this decision. Why, not, why don't we go and just throw ourselves on the mercy of the uh, foreign enemy because we're going to die here anyway. That's what the passage said. We're as good as dead. Let's go. They may kill us, but so what? Because we're going to die anyway. And you know, the whole story uh, turns on these four guys and their conversation which says, let's risk everything. And it's interesting that, that you know, there would be no story if they had not done that. There would be no answer. There would be no. Let, they would never know that. Hey, you don't have to be in bondage. And uh, it's amazing how powerful people are who don't care what happens to them. I thought about that a lot as I thought of this story. The whole story turns on four guys who don't really have any other agenda. Uh, so we die, we die. And I thought, how powerful people are who don't care what happens. How dangerous people are who don't care what happens, who have got no other agenda. Often, you know, we would do things. Uh, we would maybe talk about Jesus more, but hmm, I've got a reputation. I've got a job. Uh, I've got popularity. Hold on, I don't know that I want to risk that. But I would give a lot of money, but what about, and what about the children if we did move Maybe overseas with the gospel, what about... We've got so many other agendas. There's so much we would do for God. But, mm, hey, what about... There's so many whatabouts in our minds that prevent us from being absolutely free. We love to sing about how free we are. We love to celebrate it, but mm, uh, there are lots of other considerations. These four guys were incredibly powerful because they had no other considerations at all. They were literally free to do what they wanted. And I thought about that and I realized there's something about that that's about the New Testament Christianity was a bit like that. When Paul was uh, going to go into a town and they said, no, don't go there, it's dangerous. The, the Jews will they'll stone you, they'll kill you. And you go, hey, come on, save your life, Paul. Uh, and you get this answer from Paul. He says, he said, I don't regard my life as of any account, as dear to myself, that I might finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord. It's like they're saying, no, 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 hold on, preserve your ministry, you're an important guy. And he said, no, no, I want to fulfill my ministry. And if, if losing my life is part of that, hallelujah. He said, wow, that's, that's amazing, that's kind of radical. That's kind of careless about yourself. And Paul says extraordinary things like, if one died, therefore all are dead. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died. 
and who rose again from the dead. It's like the death of Jesus really makes all our values change. If one died, then all died. We're all benefiting from what happened to him. We're all celebrating that our, forgive, our sins are forgiven because he died. And he says, that's had an incredible effect on me. In fact, it says in Galatians, Paul writing again, he says, I glory in the cross. And we sometimes sort of glory in the cross, the, the old rugged cross. But he, he says, I glory in the cross by which I was crucified to the world. And the world was crucified to me. So that his expectation it completely changed. The cross not only took Jesus out, it took me out. It took out my expectations, my agenda, my plans. He was a leading Pharisee. He was seated at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a beyond his brothers or his contemporaries, he said. He's a leading, a leading Pharisee. Uh, he's got authority in Israel. And when he met Christ, that all went. The cross, by the cross by, by which I was crucified. <laughs> I lost all my ambition, all my thinking, it went. Uh, so now my whole agenda's changed. My expectations changed. My hope has changed. So these guys were so free outside the city because they had nothing else to live for. I wonder what you or I might do if we had nothing else to think about. But these guys had nothing else. And, and that's their, I think that's why the story is so fascinating. It's, it turns on somebody who quite free from other thoughts. And they also knew there was nothing in the city. We sometimes think there is something, as it were, in the city. That the, the world has got something for us. And these guys understood, hey, the world's got nothing for us. I wonder if we've seen that yet. That really the world has got nothing for us, actually. Not when you've seen what we've seen, that Jesus saves forever. We're going to live forever. All our sins are forgiven. Eternal life. That this, that the values change everything dramatically. Paul had a co-worker. His name was Demas. And you see his name in a few of Paul's epistles. He's a co-laborer. He kind of honors him. He's a worker with him. And then the last time he's referred to in one of Paul's letters, in Paul's latest letter, he says, Demas has left me, having fallen in love with this passing age. Demas, this servant, this guy who was with Paul. I mean, being that close to Paul. Amazing that something in the world got him. The world's ever so powerful. You see someone starts as a Christian, and then the cares of this world, Jesus talked about, in the parable of the sower. Just the preoccupation with other things. It can kind of just choke the word. And, and we're not so free to give ourselves exclusively to this wonderful reality. Because well, there's other things. Other things. And these guys were free from other things. Jesus, we're told, that he might sanctify the people suffered outside the gate. Like these Lepers outside the gate. Let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no lasting city, but we're seeking a city which is to come. That change of perspective, that change of hope. No, we're looking for a city to come. Paul says, our citizenship's in heaven. We're waiting the king. That's our new focus. That's where our eyes are focused. Jesus is coming. 
He's going to inaugurate a whole new kingdom. He's going to make a new heavens, new earth, new bodies. We're going to go in. Hallelujah. And that excites us so much that other things lose their value. They don't grip us so much. Possessions don't matter so much. Being uh, impressive with the kind of size car we have, impressive with the sort of kitchen we have, impressed by the sort of layout we can have. These things become pretty insignificant, really. Because we've been captivated by something that has made this present city look pretty valueless. And increasingly, the city that we live in, the culture of the UK, is getting more and more distorted and confused. And it's becoming more and more clear that we've lost our way pretty seriously. Yet economically, but also morally. What is happening to our nation? What's happening to our people? And you begin to, we get more and more persuaded. Now, Jesus is the answer. His eternal kingdom is the thing we live for. And this is, there's nothing in the city. So these lepers are very powerful because they've got no other agenda and they've got no confidence in the city. That makes them very powerful in God's purpose. And that's true for us too, beloved. We've got no other agenda, really. We just want to live for him. And we know the city's got nothing for us. We have dealings with the world, but Paul says this, we have, as though we had no dealings with it. It doesn't get into our guts. It doesn't shape our ambitions. We see it's passing away. We don't want to live for it. So these lepers then, they're the key to the story. Now, the story is that they say, what's the point of sitting here? And they go thinking, I can imagine they're going, waiting to encounter the centuries you know, here's this great camp of soldiers, and uh, wow, they're scary guys, and they're bound to be sentries. You know, who goes there? What are you doing? And uh, I'm not sure they tiptoed along, saying, you know, no, no, no sentries yet. Why is there no sentry? Uh, and, and, then, and then they get there, and to their utter amazement, there's no army there. They've fled. They've gone. There's nothing there. There's just nobody to defend what's happening. And so suddenly these poor guys who haven't eaten for ages, they, they open the tent and say, oh man, alive, look what's here. Look at the food. Look at the drink. Look at the clothes. Look at the silver. Look at the gold. And you know, these armies, they didn't get salaries so much as they had battles and they spoiled the enemy. And uh, you read of these stories of David's battles and others, that they, they take the spoils in the battle because armies traveled with what they got in the last battle. And they often carried great resources. At one point, it says about David, it took him days to disperse the spoil from the battle that he won. And here's this amazing riches that they've discovered Food, drink, it's just they, they went to one tent and they ate and they drank and they put on new clothes. And then they hid that and went to another tent. It's like, what have you found? It's like Aladdin's cave. Boy, look what we've stumbled on. These impoverished guys in their rags and they're throwing away their rags and putting on these magnificent clothes and taking this wonderful food and, 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 and I guess a, a, a little drink too. And I should think they're getting pretty happy and excited. And gosh, this is a really good place to be, an exciting place to be. It's so much so that they're going from tent to tent. There's nobody else there. It really is like Aladdin's cave. It's like, wow, look what I found. I remember once I was 
I was in Portsmouth and I was preaching and I was told about a, a Bible bookshop. Well, if you're like me, you love Christian bookshops. So this guy told me where it was and uh, I went there and wow, it was like shelves, shelves of new books and old books, wonderful old classic books and the prices were wonderful. And it was like, whoa, look what I found. There's a whole Lord Jones Ephesians series. Ah, and there's this, and there's, whoa, and there's Spurgeon and there's, and there, I'm thinking, man, alive. And I phoned, I phoned my son, Joel, and I said, hi, Joel. I said, I'm in Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. <laughs> so he said, what are you talking about? So I told him, I said, I was told about this amazing bookshop. And uh, there used to be more like it in Brighton. And when you bought a lot, which I did when I was at Bible College, they used to throw in some more too. I was wonderful. The accessibility of Christian books. And I was, I was at Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. So anyway, a little while later, I mean, I'm eating. When I came out, my phone's got a few messages on it. And, and there's Joel's. He said, Dad, I'm going to Portsmouth today. Where's that bookshop? And then, you know, I'm not there, so the next one. Dad, I'm in Portsmouth. Where's that bookshop you told me about? Where is it? I'm in Portsmouth now. Where is it? And then there's a third call on the phone, and it says, I'm in there. <laughs> it's like, whoa, I found it. I found it. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm in, in Aladdin's cave. Now, this story is, is, is important to see that the Bible's all about the triumph of Christ, actually. It's all about it. And you'll find story after story in the Bible where it looks like it's the end. Like Moses takes the people of Israel out of, you know, out of slavery. The Passover blood is shed. Our sins are covered. We're not going to die. Wow, we're free. And then, ah, the Red Sea. Ah, oh, we're stuck. That's it. And here comes, here comes Pharaoh and his army. It's like, that's it. It's all over. And then what? The great deliverance. The Red Sea opens. And they're set free. Two million people set free from slavery. And the army goes in and they're slaughtered by the, the flood. Then you get David and Goliath. Goliath strutting around. And David takes him out with a stone. You know, Gideon cut it down. Only 300 of us. Then th see, thousands are taken out. The Bible has story after story after story which tells of apparent deadly defeat turned over. And they're all preparing us for the great one. They're all saying God is a God of deliverance. God saves. God rescues. That's the whole story of the Bible. And it rescues when we feel there's little hope for me. We're stuck in. We can't get through. That's what the Bible's about. And the, all leading up to the great one. The great one. Jesus. Crucified. Discredited. Seemed to be a, a shameful crook, a liar, cheat. Crucified. There's nothing more horrific. The most shameful form of execution ever invented. Hanging naked. Hanging with no answer from heaven. It's kind of it's all over. All that hope we had in him is gone. Why? He, 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 he didn't turn up after all. God didn't, God didn't come. God didn't answer him. He's shamed, abandoned, cursed. He's a failure. And you get this similar story of Mary Magdalene. And Mary, Mary Magdalene, rather like this leper, these lepers going to 
Well, what, a corpse? To be associated with this shameful figure. And, you know, she goes there with no hopes whatever. And then suddenly there comes this word, Mary. And yeah, she, thinks he's the, she thinks he's the gardener. And then she suddenly hears her name, Mary. Rabbi! <laughs> it says, they could not believe for joy. They couldn't, but the whole thing's reversed. The whole thing's turned around. He's the saviour. He's the one. Now, when I've, I've heard this story preached on, which I have guests over the years sometimes, very often people rush on to the verse which says, we should not keep silent. We've got so much to tell. We've discovered the food. We've discovered we ought to go back into the city. The four lepers ought to go back into the city and tell. And sometimes that's the kind of argument that is brought from the, from the passage. It's like, it's all about you must tell others what you found. Well, of course, that's hugely important. But I feel sometimes we rush to that. And perhaps we haven't seen the extraordinary wonder of their life-changing experience. And, and I believe that's one of the problems we have as the church. Like you're saved now, now witness. Yeah, sure. But what, is, what has our experience been? And, and it's important for us to see that for these, these lepers, their life was transformed. They've now got as much food as they'll ever want. They've got clothes, they've got gold, they've got silver. It's a complete transformation. And, and really, it's their transformation that makes the story so relevant. They've experienced God's salvation in such a way, they think, wow, man alive, that is extraordinary. And beloved, I think it's important for us. I, I've been looking recently at how it says, on the day of Pentecost, I thought of it when the, the, synod, the synod was in England a few months ago. And you know, you get all these bishops coming in from all over the world and they have their holy meeting and then they come out and make their statement. And I think on the day of Pentecost, if you like, that's the first time the church ever went public. It's the day of Pentecost. I mean, this was a big day, the synod. There's the archbishop of here and archbishop of there all over the world. Here they come, the leaders of the church. They go in, meet, and then they come out and speak. The very first presentation of the church to the world was that day of Pentecost. Wow, I mean, it's historic. We've been waiting centuries for the church. It's a promise of the prophets, you know, Isaiah and all these people. The day will come. It's going to, the church will be presented. And when they come out, they look like they're all drunk. Imagine that. Imagine after the synod of it on the BBC News a few weeks ago, and here comes the synod, and they walk out, and what is this? They are drunk. What is the deal? They're overwhelmed with their experience of God. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. They were overwhelmed. And the scriptures doesn't seem to be ashamed to say they looked like they were drunk. It's not like an enemy of the church that wrote this. They thought they were drunk. No, no, no. It's Luke is happy to write this. They look like they're drunks. What is it about drunks? Well, they're happy. And they're not only happy, they're kind of noisy happy. We used to, uh, we, we lived in a house. I was so pleased we got this house. I thought the bus stop's handy. Then our first night, our bedroom, our bedroom was just next to the bus stop. Sorry about this. But we just moved house. And... Uh, and I remember we went to bed 
uh, early because we're exhausted from the move. And the bus comes and stops outside and lets off its air brakes. So, shh, I thought, what is that? But what was worse was that we lived just up one block from a bar on the seafront in Hove, which got increasingly popular. And, and a lot of uh, international students used to use it in the summer. And they'd walk up our road and they'd turn and they'd be at, at our bus stop outside our bedroom on Saturday night. And I'm preaching tomorrow morning. And, and, and they're noisy. I mean, they're not only happy, they're noisy about it. And they don't care. That's a, see, drunks are not only happy, they don't care. They really don't, they not, they don't care about their reputation anymore. It's like they've been freed. And the Bible makes this kind of irreligious comparison. They're not drunk like you think they are. They're full of the Spirit. They found something awesome. They're amazed at what they've experienced. They're so flooded with the presence of God. They're, they're overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. They're even speaking a language that can't be understood, which is kind of crazy. Some people say, oh, of course, they're preaching to all different. No, they're not preaching at all. They're declaring the wonderful works of God. Peter preaches. When Peter preaches, they're cut to the heart because he's speaking a common language that they all understand. These guys are not preaching. They're speaking the wonderful works of God in these incredible gifts that God's given, the gift of tongues. They're overwhelmed with their encounter with God. It's a bit like these four lepers. They're, they're kind of, Wow. And sometimes we go to tell people about Jesus and we've not got that wow factor. We're not kind of, wow, this is amazing. And when it happens, when, when Mary meets with Jesus, Jesus, you're alive. So she ran all the way to go and tell the others. And it's just, I love this word, go and tell them those dreadful, miserable failures that I spent three years on. <laughs> tell that Peter, I want to have words with him. It doesn't say that. It says this, go tell my brothers it's one of the most wonderful phrases. Go tell my brothers. Your brothers? Those hopeless failures. Peter, he even swore and cursed and said, I don't know him. Go tell my brothers. I wonder if we've really let that grip our hearts. The wonder of the grace of God. That we're just, see Jesus was buried. Jesus was guilty apparently. There's no answer from heaven. His Resurrection says he's declared to be son of God with power through the resurrection from the dead. He is thoroughly justified, vindicated. He's not a failure, he's a winner. He's not a loser, he's a, tri he's a triumphant, victorious king and we're with him. Yeah. We're his brothers and sisters. I'm a failure, no, 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 no. By one sacrifice, listen, by one sacrifice he has perfected us for all time. That's pretty good news. It says in Hebrews, the Old, Old Testament priests, they could never sit down because they had to offer, then they do another offering, then another offering. They could never, and the Hebrews writer says, they never sat down. But Jesus, having offered himself once and for all, sat down, having perfected us for all time. Hallelujah. I'm perfected for all time. I'm justified freely. You see, so often, because we think Christianity is about morality and how well am I doing and I'm trying hard to please God. No, no. I'm now dependent on someone else who pleased God. Jesus saves. We sang it. 
Jesus saves. Jesus gives us the gift of a clean conscience before God. You enjoying your clean conscience? See, some people say, when you pray, start by confession. Start by saying, Lord, I'm sorry for this and I'm sorry for that. Just clear the decks. But that's useless. Jesus didn't say that. When his leading apostles said to him, teach us to pray, he said, pray, Father, hallowed be your name. He didn't say, start with, Lord, I'm so sorry. Don't do that. Because you have an enemy called the accuser of the brothers who accuses you day and night. So if you start and say, Lord, I'm sorry about this, and he'll say, and that as well. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that too. And so we get more and more guilt conscious and our relationship with God becomes sin-centered. I'm such a failure. And some Christians, even in their churches today, will say, we are miserable sinners. And that, No, no, I've been perfected for all time through the death of Jesus. So have you. If you're believing in Jesus, he has perfected you for all time. You are justified. It's not you never sinned. Peter, I know you swore and said you didn't know me, but it's like you never ever sinned in all your life now because I've taken away your guilt. And I'm justified and so are you. You're in me, vindicated, justified. Hey, it's wonderful. Wonderful. And so often, beloved, Christians are confused. They're struggling to feel accepted. And so it's like Paul says, look, we, 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 see, we think, I'm going to try harder for, to please God. We're just coming up for the new year. You, know, you, get, you get a diary, you think, sorry about last year, Lord. I'll try harder. You know, I've got a diary. I haven't messed up one page yet. I'll do better. I'll try harder. I'll try harder. What should I do? I think I'll put the alarm clock earlier. I'll read the whole Bible. I'll pray longer. You know, I will try and do these things. And Paul says this, you who be justified by law have fallen from grace. Now when we use that phrase, fallen from grace, we usually mean she doesn't come to church anymore. But that's not what Paul means. Paul invented the phrase. And what Paul is saying is this, you who would be justified by rule keeping have fallen from grace. You've misunderstood. <laughs> Jesus saves. Jesus declares you righteous. You can't improve on that. See, what happened at Galatia was Paul preached the gospel and when he'd finished, he moved on as an apostle to do it somewhere else and the Judaizers moved in behind him. And they said, hey, look, we are, they're Jewish Christians, but they're confused. And they say to these Gentiles, hey, we're so glad you've received our Messiah. This is great, you've received our Messiah. Um, but, you know, we've known him for centuries and uh, our prophet said the Gentiles would come. Um, but you know you must keep the feast days and if you really want to keep God happy you shouldn't eat that kind of food and you must keep the Sabbath and really you ought to be circumcised they say these are things you ought to do and Paul writes Galatians which is his angriest letter he says you fools who's bewitched you what are you trying to do I placarded Christ crucified you can't improve on that that's your place of celebration. That's the wonder we've discovered, that we are declared righteous as a gift because of what Jesus did. You see, no one said to me when I got saved, you must keep the feast days and all that. No one said that, but people said things like this. I remember I was saved from a totally pagan uh, place, and I, I didn't know any, I didn't go to church, my parents were not believers, uh, so it's all new to me. So that now you're a Christian, wow, okay. Uh, you must have a quiet time every day. Uh, okay, that sounds a bit quaint, what's that? Or you must read your Bible every day. You must pray every day. And really, 
do you have to do your hair like that? You should change that, you know. And actually, you should wear different clothes. It's like, okay, got it. Uh, uh, got it. Okay, got it. Okay, thank you. I feel so freed by the gospel. <laughs> it's like how all this stuff you have to do to, to really be happy. And it's really completely missing the point that Jesus has done enough to remove our guilt. You say, well, don't you read the Bible anymore? Yeah, I love it. I'm reading it all the time. I really love the Bible. But I don't read it to say, half an hour this morning, Lord, impressive. Do I get points for that? Prayed for half an hour. Points for that. I don't do anything to impress God because I'm hidden in someone who's already impressed him. See, that's what, that's what these, these lepers, wow, it's all free. That's the wonder of it. It's all there and it's all free. And we just take it. And we celebrate it. Then when we've understood that, then we've got something to tell. Because we're overwhelmed with what we found. We're delighted. Like the day of Pentecost, it's like, wow. And they said, what is this? What is this? Oh, it's all about Jesus. And that should be the church. That God has a glorious church filled with wonder, filled with love. Difficult to understand love in a difficult day. Joy, hope. When things look so bad. But even in the supermarket queue, we're not moaning like everybody else. Even at the school gates, we're not moaning like everybody else. There's something about, what is that about you? That's what should be creating this question. What is that about these Christians? And we've found something, and it's all free. And you can have it. I believe that's so important. It's not just, hey, you must go and tell others. It is we found something so wonderful that we can barely hold back. That's what I believe the story is about. It's got two main themes. The first one, the lepers had no other agenda. So they're ever so useful. You and I would be so much more useful to God if other agendas didn't force their way in. Yeah, I would do that, but I'd serve God more, but no, no, they had no buts. They're absolutely free. Because their experience, they're going to die anyway. And Paul says, no, the cross of Christ, I'm crucified to the world. I'm freed by it. And then this wonder of what we found. Let me close with an illustration. A man called Buck Singh, Indian Christian, was taken to see Mount Everest. And uh, he was so excited about it. When I grouped to a and they ascended hill after hill after hill. And then there's this view of Everest in the morning. And he's with the group and he attends them. He's looking up. And he's actually strangely unmoved. And doesn't quite understand it. And they're looking up at Everest and they're just thinking, man, this is wonderful. And then the party begins to get a bit bored, time to move on. And the guide comes to him and says, uh, uh, Look, people want to move. And he said, well, yeah, I'm just kind of disappointed. He said, look, just stay there. Stay about 20 minutes. Stay there. He said, we won't be far on. You'll catch us up. So he said, I'm standing there. He said, after about a quarter of an hour, suddenly a mist moved. And he said, it was as though the mountain took a great step forward. And I saw it. And I was overwhelmed with it. Absolutely overwhelmed. 
when the mist moved and the mountain kind of moved, stepped out of the vagueness. And then he said this, there was a group of people around the world saying they saw Mount Everest at dawn. He said, I have to say, they didn't see anything. They didn't see anything. What I saw was stunning. And beloved, it's important for us that like these lepers, we know something that is overwhelming us, exciting us, changing all our values, changing all our values. Because we've seen something so breathtaking. We've drunk so deeply. Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who was speaking to, you'd ask, he'd give you living water. You'd have in you a well of water springing up. God's offering us so much. Let's not settle for a misty view. Let's say, God, open the eyes of my heart. Let me see more of you. Let me be excited by you and press into everything you have for us. So much more. The wonderful healings we've heard about. All comes in the package. God is here for us. God is available to us. Let's press in to own everything. Yes, then we go and tell. Father, I just pray, bless your word to us that it might affect our value system, affect our choices. Lord, let your word do us good, we do pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, my name's Dan Baptist and I'm lead pastor here at Jubilee Community Church. We really hope that something from this morning's word has blessed you and reached you and if you'd like to talk about anything you've heard or just be able to talk about maybe faith or get some prayer then please get in contact you can email us give us a call at the center and one of the team's going to get back to you we'd love to do this especially if you're just thinking about what it is to become a christian you want to sit down and really talk that through with anyone we also run regularly on a sunday some joining the church courses and if you want to know more about jubilee community church and what it is to belong here then you can just uh, find out online when the next one of those is going on and you can attend, have a meal, sit down, talk about it. We also have some amazing midweek group life uh, where it's a great opportunity to dig further into your faith. Again, you can find out that on our website too. Anyway, just wanted to say hi and uh, bless you and we'll catch up soon.